Good morning, Sanctuary. It's good to be with you. Good to be back. Fun words from Jesus today, as always. First, I want to thank you all for um, being patient with us the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've been talking about, about money, about 100% more than Sanctuary ever talks about money. And so thank you to those of you who responded in this past week to help us make up some of that shortfall from the summer slump. Uh, I do want to take a few minutes today to talk about this business of giving, kind of, and, and to talk about how we think about giving to the church specifically. Because I think in, in one way, it's easy for us to think in abstractions when we start to think about a community rather than thinking about uh, in specificity without having some actual handles about what do we mean when we talk about a community? What do we mean when we talk about sanctuary specifically? 319 years ago, the Queen of England and Scotland, Queen Anne, she established what would be known as Queen Anne's Bounty. This was basically a scheme to help, not like a, a bad scheme, it's a good scheme, positive scheme, whatever the positive word for a scheme is, it's that. And it was a scheme to help the church, which post-Reformation had been stripped of a lot of its property, its assets, and left an overwhelming number of the church's clergy uh, unable to earn a living wage. So this meant a number of the church's clergy were actually forced out of the church and into other trades and into other kinds of vocations. And then there were others who remained part of the church, but because of the pressures of the people who actually had the money, they, they felt unable to actually preach their convictions. And so they ended up leading at the whims of the people in power, at the, peop for the people with the wealth and the money. So in 2004, my friend Rowan Williams gave an address on the 300th anniversary of the Queen Anne's bounty where he said, what we do with our money proclaims who we think we are, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. This isn't a novel idea. In fact, Rowan Williams is just echoing those familiar words from scripture, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To make his point, Rowan Williams shares a story from a bishop of the Church of England who had gone to regular confession for several decades. But he realized that his confessor, the person he's going and making his confession to, had never once asked him about how he spent his money. As if a person's spirituality and their maturity were somehow separate from their financial decisions as if this were not part of how a person defined themselves before God and before the world. So he goes on to say that all of our actions in some way reveal us. All of our actions say something about who we are and who we think we are and what we believe to be true about the world. So why should our economic life be any different, he asks. Why should this too not be an area in which we help to shape our eternal destiny, he says, or be considered a matter of sin or of holiness? 
heavy stuff from my friend Rowan. So on the 300th anniversary of Queen Anne's bounty, Rowan Williams argues that the benefit of securing the financial future of the church was this. He says, it was established in order to help the Church of England to be holy. That somehow, by making sure the needs of the church were met, it allowed the church to be holy. An extravagant statement? No, he says, because it was a move to assist the church to be itself. Hear that today. It was a move to assist the church to be itself. What this gift made possible was that it began to make it possible for the church to be herself. That rather than just worrying about how to pay the bills or keep the lights on, the church was freed up to be who she was supposed to be. That her leaders were free to be who they needed to be in the community. That, I want to argue today, is what your giving and your support of sanctuary makes possible. It allows sanctuary to be herself, to be who we're called to be, and to do the work that we're called to do without sweating it, to do the work we're called to do without sweating it. And that's not just for sanctuary as a community, that's for all of us as individuals. All of us in some way are made to do the work we're called to do and to be the people God imagines us to be without sweating it. To be ourselves, knowing that we have been entrusted to God's care and to one another. Consider the ravens, we're told in Luke's gospel. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. God cares for them. God makes sure that their needs are met. And how much more valuable, Luke argues, are you than the birds? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, we hear in the scriptures. Which starts off sounding really great until you hear that next line, tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. (laughs) But we're not to be anxious because we're in this moment now being cared for, intended to by God. So the lingering question then is very simply, if your support of sanctuary means that we are free to be who we are called to be, then who has God called sanctuary to be? A few weeks ago now, I emailed about 20 of you, about 20 of our parishioners, and I asked them to answer three questions for me. Just curious about how people are thinking about sanctuary, how they're engaging with sanctuary, what their experience is with this community. And these are the three questions I asked them. Why does sanctuary exist? Why are we here? Who does sanctuary serve? What kind of people find a home at sanctuary or fed at a place like sanctuary? And then three, how does sanctuary serve them? In what ways are we making space for those people that sanctuary serves? And what was fascinating to me about the responses is that all but one of them said explicitly that sanctuary exists as a safe place. Think about that. 
to ask 20 random people to describe a space and a community, and over 95% of them use this exact phrase, sanctuary is a safe place. First of all, I think that's incredibly humbling. It's humbling to learn that this idea and this hope that you have for a community is actually being realized. And I, I don't know a whole lot of churches in Tulsa whose aim, whose goal it is to create a community that's safe. I think it's assumed that our communities are safe, but I don't know that how many communities their goal and their aim is to actually create space that can be called safe. Success just looks a little bit different around here, and I think that's okay. I think it's a good thing. For one, it means that we are people who are free to be who we are, that we don't have to show up and pretend that we have it all together when we show up at Sanctuary. We've often quoted, uh, his name is Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, this Orthodox guy who said, God can save the sinner that you are, but not the saint you pretend to be. And we've really taken that to heart, Sanctuary. That's so wonderful. Sanctuary is a place where it's almost assumed you are showing up carrying some kind of hurt. That you're showing up here having some kind of woundedness. Some kind of jadedness or disenchantment with the church. And again, we don't pretend to have it all together. But we are a people who have committed to bringing those hurts, to bringing those burdens and those wounds to Christ and to one another because Christ himself bears wounds. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he opens his book, Life of Christ, with this sentence. This is the first sentence in the book. He says, Satan may appear in many disguises like Christ, and at the end of the world will appear as a benefactor and philanthropist. But Satan never has and never will appear with scars. Satan never has and never will appear with scars. Sanctuary, if we are anything, we are a people who have some scars. And to be human is to wound and to be wounded. And here we can tell the truth about that. That is, at least in part, what it means for sanctuary to be a safe place. It means that whoever is up here from week to week, whether they're proclaiming the gospel or leading us to the table, they're no better than anyone else. They're just a beggar leading other beggars to bread. We are just doubters and mystics and some days agnostic at best, but our lives have been touched by the life of the risen Christ. And so we are just trying to tell that story in ways that help shock other people back to life. That's what we're doing. In today's gospel reading, we hear Jesus instructing us on how to handle disputes, <laughs> how to handle offenses when someone has hurt you, and notice that there are, there are all these contingencies in the text. If another member of the church sins against you, if the member listens to you, if you are not listened to, if the member refuses to listen to them, if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, there are all these contingencies that are made. 
And it's fascinating that the infinitely creative spirit is totally fine working within those grains, working within the contingencies of our own lives. That means that when things happen to us, when woundedness happens to us, when offense happens to us, we're never just at the mercy of bad luck. We're never at the mercy of bad luck. We are forever at the mercy of God. God doesn't remove all of the ifs from our lives. God wants to help us see through all of those ifs to the possibilities that God makes possible. That's what Jesus is inviting us into today. And this is evident right there in the text where he says, let such a one be to you as what? A Gentile and a tax collector. Oof. How many times have we used this text to, to write people off that we disagree with? To dismiss the people that we couldn't change their minds or get them to see things the way we see things. And usually we don't even jump through all the other hoops about bringing that person to a friend and then bringing to a few and then bringing them before the church. We cut right from, if they disagree with you, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is giving us permission to do. If they won't fess up to the wrongdoing, if they won't change their mind and see things your way, treat them like an outsider. Treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. But remember, this is Matthew's gospel. And who is Matthew? He's a tax collector. Matthew is emphasizing when that person won't listen to you, when they can't admit the offense that's been done to you, when they won't even acknowledge the wounds that they have inflicted on you, treat them like somebody who's still invited to the table. Because Matthew is. Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is a test of understanding. The entire gospel works like this. It's a challenge of awareness and understanding. A Gentile and a tax collector, the tax collector is at the table with Jesus. The whole thrust of the New Testament is that the Gentiles are the people who are in, but they just don't know it yet. So your last ditch effort, it's not to just dismiss them as somebody who is outside the very last thing you do is to remember that they're invited to the table and that they are in even if they don't know it yet. So continue to treat them like that. If we are working to let sanctuary be herself, and if who sanctuary is as herself is a people who create a safe place for others, then part of how we create that space is by treating even the tax collector and the Gentile with love, and with hospitality. This is a bit of a tangent, but just because sanctuary is safe doesn't mean that sanctuary needs to be a secret. I think that's one of the things that as we have journeyed into the tradition over the last several years, and 
we've rightly criticized some things about the traditions that raised us. That we've left behind a lot of good as we've tried to seek out this other thing that's also good. And to be sure, I mean, we're talking about charismatic culture, we're talking about evangelical culture, and to be sure, the way evangelical has gotten politicized and weaponized, we, we had a, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this, we had a parishioner a number of years ago who told this story that she introduced herself as an evangelical to someone, and then she stopped and she goes, like a, like a love your neighbor kind of evangelical, not a storm the capital kind of evangelical. <laughs> She put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> we have to define what we mean when we say we're evangelical. And I think it's something like that. That we're still committed to loving our neighbors. There were still people who take the scriptures seriously. There were people who actually do believe that the way we live our lives as Christians is never just for ourselves, but it's always for someone else. That's a long way around for me to say, you can invite people to church still. I don't know the last time I invited someone to church because inviting someone just has enough of that hint of the old kind of thing that we used to do. But listen, if we think that sanctuary really is that kind of space that can hold those kinds of tensions, that she really is a place that is safe, no matter where you're coming from or what you're looking for, no matter what kind of wounds you're walking into the room with. We're always making room for other people to be with us. Okay, back to treating people with love and hospitality. A couple things and I'll be done here. There is a kind of hospitality that simply just collapses difference. There is a kind of hospitality that is often super well-meaning, but it's just unhelpful at best, and then it's hurtful at worst. We've all heard what it sounds like, this kind of hospitality that collapses difference. We know the kinds of things that are said. It's things like, well, I don't see color, for example, or, well, I'm colorblind when it comes to people. These kinds of ideas that... We mean them to be hospitable, but it collapses difference. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Again, it's well-meaning, but those kinds of ideas, they fail to respect the genuine differences of other people. And that's true across lines of race, of sex, of politics, of singleness. To ignore difference is in some way to say, you're really one of us. You're not who you are, you are actually one of us. It's not hospitality. We have to say in some way that their otherness is the very reason for the hospitality. We don't ignore the difference, we name it and we still make room, that's hospitality. This isn't done out of pity, but because their otherness somehow makes us more whole. Again, them being part of us makes us more ourselves. Luke's gospel bears witness to this idea. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners 
do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, Jesus says, just as your Father is merciful. What we need to be able to say, if sanctuary is going to be a place that is safe for others, is that the very thing that has made you unwelcome is the same thing that makes you welcome here. Because here we are a people who come bearing our wounds. Not so we can bleed all over one another, but so those wounds can be bound by the same Christ who shows up to his disciples bearing his own wounds. And in the same way that his wounds worked for the faith of the disciples, our wounds can help make faith possible for the ones who are disenchanted and felt abandoned by the church. This kind of hospitality, creating this kind of safe place, it doesn't mean we just collapse everything in on itself. There is an inside and there is an outside. We have to acknowledge that. There is an inside and there is an outside. And without that reality, there can be no belonging. There can be no hospitality without acknowledging the in and the out. Willie Jennings talks about this idea of what he calls a thinking margin. And he reminds us that all of us were Gentiles. We were the people at the margins. We were the people on the outside. We were the people that when others heard, treat them like tax collectors and Gentiles, placed us at the farthest edges of belonging. So our engagement with Jesus at one time, for all of us, this was true. Our engagement with Jesus was engagement from the margins, not from the center of power, not from the center of privilege. We were all outsiders who were brought into the love of God by the life of Jesus Christ. All of us were outsiders who were brought in. But the danger, Jennings says, is that we who were once outside but were brought in, the danger is that we remain insiders. That we become gatekeepers. That we become border patrol for the kingdom. But the reason any of us are ever brought in is always for the sake of others who are still outsiders. As people who have encountered Jesus, our call after we've been brought in is to always return to the margin. And just in case you think this is a political kind of idea, conservatives protect the insiders from the outsiders. But liberals confuse the outside for the inside. And both sides fail to be loving in any real sense. This is not about conservative or liberal, right or left. This is about faithfulness to the gospel. We are called to love. You can have a, a kind of distaste for evil that never makes its way to a God-given love 
for those who are suffering. Disgust isn't compassion. If we are going to be a people who are creating a safe place, we can't just talk about being safe. We have to be safe. We have to be people who are not simply outspoken about hot button issues. We have to be willing to suffer with others. That sense of safety isn't felt when you have all the right things to say or the right ideas about things. Safety is realized when you put your body on the line. From a heart that is broken in prayer, activism without the gift of tears is dead works. We want to be people who know how to weep with those who weep and how to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is the distinction that Paul makes in today's text from Romans 13. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Rowan Williams ended his sermon on the 300th anniversary of Queen Anne's bounty the same way he opened it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sanctuary, I believe in this place. A place that lives up to its name, sanctuary, in creating a safe place for people who are wrestling with doubt, for the part-time agnostics, for the jaded, for the bruised. And here's the thing. I think you do too. I think you do too. So the question for all of us is, will we do what we can to help Sanctuary be herself? To be who God has called her to be and to do what God has called her to do without sweating it. Because I think it's what God wants for Sanctuary and it's what God wants for you. To be yourself, who God imagined you to be, God calls you to be without sweating it. Amen.